Friday to you. This is uh, 20 Questions with Pastor Mike, and we're going to talk about the Satanic Temple briefly here as we open up the the uh, live chat for questions. You guys are loading in your questions. The first one I'm, I have ready to go about the Satanic Temple. The other 19 are all going to come right now from, well, 19 that we can take from the live chat. We can't take all the questions because there's just too many, but hopefully you will find benefit and blessing as we discuss these things logically, thoughtfully, and biblically. That's, that's going to be our goal. And, um, Here's the first question. The Satanic Temple has been gaining popularity online due to their seven tenets of belief. Many people see these tenets as positive and morally good and are being drawn into their organization as a result. How can we help people see through this dangerous deception? Let's talk about this. So the, um, th there's, there's variety. Here's what you guys need to know. Like from a bird's eye view, there's a variety of groups called satanic or satanists. There's a number of different groups and they don't even necessarily have agreement on, on all sorts of things. They're kind of all anti-Christian. I mean, there's, the, there's agreement there, but, but that's true of a lot of groups. Um, this particular group, the satanic temple, here's what you want to know. They want you to freak out. They want you to be like, oh, and spaz out and, and be worried about them and be irritated and bothered by them. It's like their goal to do this. Let me give you an example of this. This is something they did. Um, and I don't know how many people care about this, but it, they something they did to the Westboro Baptist Church. Now, the Westboro Baptist Church, a lot of us know, um, they're not really, they don't really represent Christianity in any way, shape, or form. They're just a hate group. And um, the... The, these are the people who would go and picket funerals, military funerals with picket signs that say like that the person's in hell and stuff like that. And they, they basically think that just like 12 people on planet earth are saved and, the rest, and it's just them or something like that. Really messed up, twisted group. Um, very hateful, very unbiblical. But this, the satanic temple, that's their leader of the temple. I'm sorry for putting this on your, this image on your screen. I, I want you to understand who this group is. Um, did a ritual, as you can read the text on your screen there, they did a ritual at the grave site of like the matriarch of, you know, the, the, the Westboro Baptist church. They're not really Baptist by the way, right? Like the Baptists have asked them to stop calling themselves Baptist. Anyway, um, listen to what they say about it. After the Boston marathon bombings claimed the lives of three people, the Westboro Baptist announced their plans to picket the funerals of the victims to draw attention to their loathsome anti-gay agenda. In response, the satanic temple went to Meridian, Mississippi to perform a pink mass. There's a term they just made up, okay? Literally made up for this purpose. A ritual they made up for this purpose. But I'm going to tell you what they did, then I'll explain why they did it, which is the part that you really want to understand. To perform a pink mass at the gravesite of the mother of the Westboro Baptist founder, Fred Phelps. The ritual was conceived to make Fred Phelps believe that the satanic temple had turned his mother gay in the afterlife and succeeded in invoking the ire of the Westboro Baptists. So pink mass is a made up thing. Okay. This isn't like a Satanism thing that you can do. Okay. They just made this up. They sat there and thought, what would be the most offensive thing we could do to irritate and bother Fred Phelps? This was their plan. This is Satanism, at least the Satanic temple in a nutshell. We will make up a religion just to irritate and bother Christians in particular and religious people. They're, that's one major side of the coin. They don't think that this thing works. They don't even believe in any of the rituals that they're doing. They don't think that they're like having an effect in, in reality, except to irritate people and serve as a troll. Modern Satanism, a lot of it is meant to be a troll on Christianity. There's kind of like another deeper layer we'll get to in a minute. I'll talk about, um, it's just meant to troll people. Oh, I forgot to show you guys like we're on number one. Um, 
<laughs> so the um, th this is this is what they're about. Uh, they they want to try to like think of ways of dismantling or mocking, right? Some of it's just catharsis. Like I just want to feel good about how I reject Christianity. A lot of these people are going to be atheists in this. Not like all atheists are like this, but there's a significant number. Um, the tenets that they spread around shock people because they think the satanic, the satanic temple, the satanic tenets, that they're going to be like these really evil things like killing children or something. But what you have to understand about the, the Satanist group is they feel totally morally superior to, to you religious nuts, you, you, you superstitious religious weirdos. So here's their tenets. One should strive to act with compassion and empathy towards all creatures in accordance with reason. Notice that's a moral tenet. It's a should. Okay. Um, within reason, how they define that ends up being self-refuting in a minute here. They say that the struggle for justice is an ongoing and necessary pursuit that should prevail over laws and institutions. Notice the word should. This is, again, this is a moral thing. These tenets are about moral things. They're not about um, scientific facts. Not yet. One's body, number three, one's body is inviolable, subject to one's will, one's own will alone. Only you can decide what happens to your body. Uh, this is an... Uh, too broad of a, a brush, obviously, but they will absolutely, completely become hypocrites on this in just a minute. You'll wait and see because what they really care about, one thing they truly advocate for is abortion, which I know in the heads of pro-choice people, they think that they've, they've, they're, they're, you know, shooting for bodily autonomy, but when they're, you know, inserting forceps into, into a womb to crush the, the, the head of a baby, that's not, that's a violation of bodily autonomy. We'll come back to that. The freedoms of others should be respected, including the freedom to offend, to willfully and unjustly encroach upon the freedoms of another is to forego one's own. Okay, these are all moral moral statements, and you could agree with at least significant parts of them. Okay, you should try to act in compassion and empathy towards all creatures. Of course, they think that doesn't include God. They think specifically it doesn't include any supernatural beings. Um, and so don't love God, right? Rebel against God. That's... That's where they get their, their name Satanism. They think Satan doesn't exist, but he sort of represents metaphorically rebellion against religion. That's, that's why they call themselves Satanists, this particular group. Here's the rest of their tenets. Beliefs should conform to one's best scientific understanding of the world. One should take care never to distort scientific facts to fit one's beliefs. This sounds kind of good to people, but this is really irrational. <laughs> um, and here's the reason why. Science doesn't inform us about moral things. Right? It, it might give you a measure of like, if you eat this kind of food and you exercise these ways, you'll, you'll live longer. Like it can tell you those things, but it can't give you the moral facts that like it's morally good to take care of your body or morally good to be generous to others or morally good to forgive or morally good to, to love, right? There, this tenet is scientism. I'm going to limit my beliefs right, to my understanding of science. But science is only able to measure certain things about reality. Like, it can't measure that your mother loves you. Like, there just isn't science for this, okay? Um, nor can it measure any of the tenets we've seen so far. Science doesn't tell us to act with compassion and empathy. Okay, so based on their own tenets, we'd have to strike off number one. Science doesn't tell us that the struggle for justice is necessary or that it should prevail. Science doesn't tell you that. It just tells you, you know, this is how things are in the natural physical world. Um, one's body is inviolable. Where does science tell you that? Right? The freedoms of others should be respected. Where does science tell you this? So 
the, the the thing is, once you remove God from the picture, once you embrace an atheistic kind of or scientistic or materialistic, naturalistic worldview, you you lose the foundation for a lot of things that you hold dearly and you think are true, but you don't realize that you can't hardly justify that with just science. Here's another thing about science. Science doesn't tell us, science doesn't give us any reason to think that science is the only way to learn things. Where does science limit your ability to learn things through, say, other forms of philosophy? I've had conversations with skeptics online where I try to encourage them that there's a philosophy behind science and that they, they might want to look into, like, the philosophy of science. And I remember being mocked in comment sections. You idiot, there's no such thing as a philosophy of science. And I just thought, oh, they don't even know. <laughs> they don't even know. This isn't good. Like, this is, this is the really small... Um, it's the world of somebody who only criticizes beliefs they don't like and doesn't turn and reflect upon the sand they're building their own beliefs on now. And that's, that's Satanism in a nutshell. Um, they say people are fallible. If one makes a mistake, one should do one's best to rectify it and resolve any harm that may have been caused. Okay, that's, you don't learn that from science. Every tenet is, guiding, is a guiding principle designed to inspire nobility in thought and action. The spirit of compassion, wisdom, and justice should always prevail over the written or spoken word. Um, of course, they, they wrote that, so they're trying to think that the written... It's, really, it's, it's just a... It's sort of a passive-aggressive comment about Christianity or about religious things that they don't like. When it comes down to it, the satanic temple, the satanic tenets, they're there as propaganda, okay? The, the Satanist has two things they do. And one, they put their first foot forward where they're like, we're Satanists. We're here to freak you out. We're here to ha ha ha. And then they put their next foot forward. Actually, we're just very rational, scientifically minded people. Satan is just a metaphor for rejecting the superstitions of religion. And then, then, then you're like, oh, I don't know how I'm supposed to think. But take it all in and realize this. The moral principles that, they, that, they, that you can agree with, at least partly, are going to be things that you find true in Christianity and substantiated with God. God gives you these morals, right? Like his, not the knowledge, not just the knowledge of the morals, but, but he grounds the, the fact of moral realities and moral obligations. Um, but you can't ground that in their own worldview. So what they've done is they're rebelling against God, rebelling against the truth, but they want to keep pieces of the truth and claim it as their own, but it's not consistent with their own worldview. That's, Satanism. Now, the other angle of it is that it's very much a vehicle for political advocacy. One of the reasons why a Satanist would even want to call himself a Satanist is because then they could try to say that they want their agendas to be recognized as religious rights. So the most recent example of this that we find is um, their Satanic Reproductive Freedom Fundraiser that they're doing right now. Let me show you that. Okay, they're raising money right now because of this major announcement. They're saying, we're going to tell, okay, they've invented a new ritual. And the ritual is abortion. They're calling it a satanic ritual. Do they believe in Satan? No, they don't believe any of that. They don't think anything spiritual is happening at this time. But they're going to call it a ritual so they can go to the government and say, the, the, the adherers to our religion of Satanism, they have a ritual called abortion. And so our religious right is to commit abortions. And so we want you to give us protections that we can as the satanic temple can administer abortifacients to our to our members and to become a member you just sign up pay a fee you're you're, you're good um so do you see what they're doing is they they don't actually believe in satan they're not it's not a religion in any sense that you might recognize it's meant to be a mockery it's a giant troll 
it's just a troll on religious people and a, and, a, and a troll meant to try to like throw a monkey wrench into religious rights. So whenever you see a, a Christian, like say, say we can have after school clubs, Bible clubs. Well, they're going to be like, well, we're going to have like Satan clubs after school. Ha ha ha. And we're going to call it religious. And we're, they're really just going to teach against religion in those groups. Ah, now you see that, that, that makes it a strong political advocacy thing. It's just a giant troll. Um, there's one more thing to consider with Satanism, though, which is this. And I think a Satanist, if you're listening, you're a Satanist. I want you to consider this possibility. If there really is a God, then, then you guys are the ones being trolled so massively. Because here you are saying, hail Satan and doing rituals. And you think it's all a joke. And you think it's all just a mockery of, of, of beliefs you don't like and you don't, you don't approve of. But, but in reality, at the same time, you're then denying all of the negative implications of what you're doing, thinking it's a holy and wonderful and positive thing, and yet Satan's just laughing at you. There's the troll. You, you, you're trolling everybody, but you're really being trolled. And that's, that's Satanism. Um, the thing about the tenets is that you can affirm much of what's said there, but not all of it for sure, because it's self-refuting. Um, but it's not really what Satanism's actually about. Satanism is actually about rebelling against religious beliefs. That's if they have a tenant, that's that should be on the list, but it's not there because that's that's part of the propaganda machine. All right, we're going to go to the next question. This is question two from Manda. I'm sorry, from Jonathan Nunez. Manda, we'll get to you next. You'll be three. Jonathan Nunez says, Hey, Mike, I appreciate your ministry. Does Isaiah 9 6 disprove the Trinity because it calls Jesus the Father? Many oneness and Unitarians use this verse to support oneness and modalism. Help, I'm confused. Um, Isaiah 9, 6. I was asked about this one a while ago, and I meant to like spend some time looking into it to give you a better answer. Sometimes I just think I don't I don't have the right answer for you ready on a, on an issue, and so I don't make stuff up. <laughs> so so um, this is this is how I do a QA, which is um, I don't feel the pressure that I have to know every single random thing in the world, but I try to know as much as I can. But um, but I, I want to do one of these days. I want to do a video on this topic because I think this is a really relevant and important issue. But I'll, I'll read it to you guys, and I'll admit ahead of time that I don't know what my answer to this is quite yet. I'll share a couple of points. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David... And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The idea here is that, uh, for those who aren't familiar with the passage, that, that this is speaking um, ultimately of, of Jesus who comes and takes on the, the throne of David. So he's going to come in, in line, in the Davidic line. And David was the king of Israel. He's going to be the king of Israel. But it's going to extend beyond that. The, of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. So his, his government will just grow and, and it will never stop. He will be um, on the throne forever, from this time forth forevermore. And he'll be righteous and perfect, unlike any of the kings that they had had after David. None of them were, were quite right. They all failed in some way. So God's going to do this. Um, so the son is born, the child is given, which is interesting because those are two things. He's born, but he's also given. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And the government's upon his shoulder. That's about that that authority he has. Now, his name is called a number of things. Wonderful Counselor. Now, some people separate this. They say his name is called Wonderful and his name is called Counselor. Um, 
But look at the things his name is called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When you look at these, um, at least I'm going to super quick run down this. At least my current thinking on it is that I see all of the Trinity here represented as well as just deity in general. So Wonderful Counselor, right? This this could be the Holy Spirit. He becomes the counselor for us. Uh, Everlasting Father could be of the referencing the Father. Um, And then Prince of Peace, the Son. So a father, spirit, son, and then mighty God, just a reference to deity. That's possible that this is what's here. Others, okay, if that's the case, does that mean Jesus is the father? Well, I I think we have a lot of other problems that come up if we do that. First off, what we have here is um, one verse that doesn't quite give you a lot of details, right? Like just admit this, Isaiah 9, 6, you need more info from other passages of scripture to fill in the details here. And what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus talks to the Father, right? He talks to the Father and he says things like the Father's greater than I. So wait, if he is the Father, if he just just is, and that's the whole story, the whole story is he just is the Father, how does that make sense? Well, there's another sense in which Jesus can be called everlasting Father, and that is that he is the one who comes and shows you the Father, Right? He is the one who comes and brings you the knowledge of the Father, relationship with the Father, and then the indwelling of the Spirit comes through him. He's not the Holy Spirit. He's not the Father. But he is the access to all of these things. He is the one who opens the door to us to know God. Okay, There's, a, there's an important thing there. Um, the, uh, uh, there's other views, and some say everlasting Father is the wrong translation, that what it should say is Father of Eternity. Okay, well, then it could be talking not about him being the Father like in the Trinity, but rather him just simply being um, eternal, that he is eternal, that he's, he's, he is the one who pre-exists time and starts time. Okay, well, then that's a different issue altogether, isn't it? I don't know exactly where I land on all that, but there's a couple thoughts that I would share with you. Yeah, I think when, when someone tries to use this phrase to disprove the Trinity, I think they're going way beyond Isaiah 9-6. Isaiah 9-6 says his name will be called, and it lists these things, so whatever our doctrines of Christ are, they need to include a valid application of Isaiah 9-6. And I think that the, the Trinity, Trinity doctrine does that perfectly fine. So I don't really see the problem there. But I'd like to give you a more of a like, conclusion <laughs> one of these days. Uh, number three, Manda says, what exactly is a soul or a spirit? Oh, well, I, I do this, just so you guys know, I do this every Friday at 1 p.m. California time. That's 1 p.m. Pacific time. And I, um, I also like to bring my cat along occasionally. There she is. That's Moxie. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I say all this because Manda, I'm not going to be able to answer this question very well at all. Uh, what exactly is a solar spirit? I wonder the same thing. I don't know. And um, when, uh, okay, obviously humans have an, Im- we have an immaterial element to us. Okay. And that immaterial element it, it exists beyond uh, the death of our body. So that could be your soul. That could also be your spirit. There's, there's a connection that's going on there. I, I don't know, though, how to like discern exactly the difference between a soul and a spirit. And here's the challenge I'd have for those of you who are like, oh, that's easy. And you're like, I got it. The answer It's so easy. What you should do is, you know, come up with your definition of soul and your definition of spirit. And then look up all the passages in the Bible where soul or spirit referring to mankind is, is referenced and ask yourself if your definition makes sense in all those contexts. And that's the thing I don't, I don't quite have the answer for. Um, the soul and the spirit are immaterial. That's that much we can 
we can say, I think with great confidence, um, the soul and spirit are personal. There, there's, there's not separate persons. I just mean that they have a, there's where you have a spirit, there's, there's a personhood there where you have a soul, there's personhood there. Um, but there's other times where the Bible talks about soul and like David says, oh, my soul, why are you cast down within me? Okay. Well, well, your, your soul's cast out. In what sense does he mean soul in that verse? Like things like that. I don't know. I don't know, Amanda. Sorry. <laughs> All right, let's go to number four. Blind Vision says, what things should a high school student consider in deciding if or how to date a godly woman? Um, that's a good question. Um, the first thing I recommend is, is just be a little patient. The, the first stage of liking somebody, um, I've been there many times, I'm sure you have, is you, you suddenly become very unrealistic, right? There was this old like song that became extremely popular where, where in the song the guy sang like, everything she does is lovely and everything she does is right. I can't remember what song it was. This was many years ago. And um, the phrase, everything she does is right. I remember thinking, that's puppy love right there, right? When you think every single thing a person does is just, oh, it's just... It's just everything's right. Even when they're wrong, they're just so cute when they're wrong. Like you were not thinking clearly at this moment. <laughs> so what I'm going to suggest is um, if you don't know what you don't like about somebody, you're probably not really ready to seriously date them. Uh, that would be some advice I'd have for you. The reason why I say this is because when you want to enter into a relationship with somebody, it, it's it's doomed to failure if you have like this super ridiculous high view of them. Like they're just this unrealistic human being that's just perfect in every way and will always make you smile. But if you see some of their problems and flaws and yet you go, no, I, I see it. I'm sober and I, I understand that. And you move forward. You won't see them all, of course, but that's a good sign. Um, I would recommend talking to like openly to people who are older and wiser than you about this relationship, like find people to talk to, whether that be parents or somebody who's older than you. Because they can often have the wisdom of experience, the wisdom of years that might be able to give you some counsel on these things. Um, some of the things that I you know, would want to see is that the person is stable. They're stable in their life. They're stable in their relationship with God. If you're going to date them, that they don't just say I'm a Christian. But there's, there's a sense of like, they're not just Christian because they happen to be in a Christian environment around church or something like that. But they carry that those Christian beliefs, that conviction when they're outside of those environments. That's an important thing because you want to see that that's consistent. Um, yeah, other things it could be like, how soon can you get married? Okay. Cause I don't really personally, this is just a side issue, but I, I'm not going to tell someone they can't date if they're not ready to get married right away. But you know, 12 years of dating is usually a negative thing. There's people who've done it and they've, and they've stayed pure and they've built a relationship. But even then I've talked to students who like totally stayed pure, dated since like junior high. And then they later looked back and were like, that was so dumb that we were dating at that age. What were we thinking? You know, so there's like a sense of, is this a good season of life? Okay. And you might be free, but they'll find somebody else. And you're like, well, I, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, so yeah, there's a few things to think about. Pray, obviously. Read Proverbs. Look at the godliness of a person that's there, the wisdom of a person. Look for those things. Um, yeah, there's a lot more to say, but those are a few thoughts for you. I hope they help. Number five, Jessica E says, hello, Pastor Mike. Thank you and the mods for this ministry. You're very, very welcome, Jessica. What does James 4.13 mean? Should we always say God willing in our plans? All right, let's look at this passage. James chapter 4, verse 13. James is kind of the kick in the rear end New Testament <laughs> epistle. I guess there's maybe more than one. But James is like big time, very much like 
calling you to live. Live according to what you say. Um, here we go. This section does start with verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boast, pardon me, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Um, this idea here, um, let me tell you what I think might be a, um, a clumsy interpretation or application of the passage. The clumsy application would be, every time I say something about a plan, I have to follow up with the phrase, if the Lord wills. I, the reason why I think this is a clumsy application is because it's just a phrase you say, right? It's almost like saying, knock on wood, which people will often say, and they have they don't actually think knocking on wood does any, like it's just an empty phrase that people say, because they're like, I hope so. Um, instead, I think that the, the internal issues is what he's getting at, is they're boasting in arrogance, and that kind of boasting is evil. What's the boasting? The boasting is the idea that that I am ultimately totally in control of my life and it's not subject to the will of God finally. Now, most Christians are not going to say they think this. The point is they're not acting like it. They're, don't behave as though the decisions that you make, the plans that you have are just, that's it. That's all there is to it. Where it doesn't ultimately depend on whether God wills or not. A whole bunch of things that you can't control. So the idea is a sense of constant awareness that not only will my plans fail apart from God's will, but I also want God's will. Like there's a sense when I say a God willing, I'm not just saying humbly, you know, cause I could be wrong. It's not just that there's another element, which is because I want God's will, right? Like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to go to such and such town and we're going to spend a year there and we're going to try and trade and make a profit. But, but I just want God's will. And I'm, I'm yielded to God's will. I'm, I'm ready to, to make a change, to change directions to have my, my heart open, to be, to get my mind changed on these issues. That, that I think is what's being taught here. The example is the way a person arrogantly goes about their life, making their own plans, focused on their own benefits. And then the other person turns and says, Lord, I want what you want. Ultimately I have plans, but, but let them be according to your will. And of course your will trumps whatever I've got planned. That's just a different heart and attitude. So when you pray, do you have to say God's will be done all the time? No, you have to, you have to be that way though. Like that's just a thing you have to have in your heart and um, it doesn't hurt to say it, but if you don't mean it, it doesn't help either. All right, number six, and we are full up on questions. We've got all 20 questions for you guys today. I'll be answering all 20 of those, however long that takes. Um, let's go to number six. Ariana says, can you give me uh, more examples about the doctrines of demons mentioned in 1 Timothy 4.1? Hmm. <laughs> let's look at it together. 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the spirit expressly says, this is interesting. I mean, interesting that, that in the, embedded in this letter from Paul is like, hey, here's something the spirit has, has revealed to us. Um, makes you wonder like when that was that the spirit revealed that where was it it's it seems to be something that was not just revealed to Paul but was has been revealed to a community 
Interesting. And now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So the faith, oftentimes when you, in fact, just about every time when you see the phrase the in front of the word faith in the New Testament, just about every time, it doesn't mean a person's personal belief, but rather like the list of things they believe. So it, it means doctrines. So the faith would be like Jesus is Lord, right? He's God with us. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again from the dead bodily on the third day. If you trust in him, you'll be forgiven for your sins. Um, the, this is like the faith is like those list of things you believe. So like um, say a Muslim has faith in Islam, but they don't have the faith because it's not Christian doctrines, biblical truth about Christ. Anyway, so some will depart from the faith. They will, they will have other false teachings, false doctrines. They will leave behind these doctrines. That gives us a clue as to what those other examples would be. Uh, Ariana. There's Ariana. Sorry, I don't know. Ariana. Um, they'll depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through, whose through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage. Okay, we'll go through some examples here in verse 3 in a second. But the idea is deceitful spirits don't ever come and say, hey, I'm a deceitful spirit, just so you know. Like, just, it's the irony of Satanism we dealt with earlier, how there's like, they say, hail Satan, but they think to themselves, we just mean it metaphorically. We're just saying this to freak out Christians. And, and the deceit is ultimately upon them because he really is um, being served by them. Um, so deceitful spirits, though, aren't, aren't announcing themselves. They're disguising themselves as what? Angels of light. Right. These these new doctrines, these false doctrines that aren't according to the faith, the truths of Christianity, the right teachings of Christ, these doctrines are being replaced by false doctrines. So Jesus, maybe he didn't die on the cross for your sins. Maybe he died for some other purpose. Maybe he didn't rise from the dead. And it doesn't really matter. You know, it's, it's all a metaphor anyways. That would be a, I, I would say that's a deceitful spirit, a teaching of demons. I think anything would be thrown into this, uh, into this list potentially that is not according to the faith. Number two, it says through whose insincerity, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Um, the idea of forbidding marriage and requiring people not to eat certain foods is the idea of like um, a, kind of like an asceticism or a, a early Gnosticism type stuff. It's connected to all, those things kind of interweave with each other. The idea I think is this, is we're going to move from the doctrines of, of truly abstaining from sin and we're going to focus on abstaining from other things that treat, the in this case, the body like it's inherently wicked. So marriage, you have to abstain from marriage. Like, it, you know, there are even those who thought, even though you're, you're married, you know, you're even more godly if you choose to never be together. Uh, Gandhi was like this. Gandhi had a belief like this. He was married, but he wouldn't be with his wife intimately. And he believed that it was like somehow wrong, right? Like it was immoral in some way. Um, he laid down and slept with a lot of other ladies, um, not his wife. That's another story. <laughs> Gandhi was not really Gandhi when you think about it. But, um, but that would be an example of that kind of a thing. Uh, abstinence from certain foods, this is, this is replacing true righteousness with external things that aren't actually making you righteous, that are actually causing you to miss out on something that God wants you to be thankful for and to enjoy. Then it says, for everything created by God is good and nothing's to be rejected. If it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. 
So the specific examples of these deceitful doctrines are these ones. Um, the forbidding of marriage that goes on in Roman Catholicism, I think it does apply. Uh, many, many Roman Catholics will push back uh, and sometimes get pretty upset about it. And they'll say, no, the priests are not required to not be married because they could just not be priests. And I'm like, that was some nice kung fu you got there. But yeah, they don't marry and it, doesn't, it seems like it applies pretty well to me. So yeah, the uh, the broad statement here is in First Timothy four. There's going to be um, doctrines of the faith that are replaced with other things, other emphasis on things that aren't really about godliness, but they have the appearance of godliness, and that we need to watch out for. Let's go to number seven. This is from Kenna Lynch, who says, "How do you become a disciple in light of Matthew twenty eight nineteen? Can you be unsaved and a disciple? I haven't found the Greek word uh, mathetuo elsewhere. That's the word for disciple. Um, seems to normally be mathetes. Okay, so I obviously don't have time to do like a word Greek word study for you right here. So let me try to share a few thoughts. Let's look at Matthew 28, 19. And it says here, go therefore and make the disciple, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So make disciples. Um, your question is, how do you become a disciple in light of Matthew 28, 19? Can you be unsaved and a disciple? Yes and no. So let me, let me back off the Greek for a second here, because you might be making an unnecessary separation between mathetuo and mathetes. That might be the case here. Disciple, think of it like um, in a real in real simplistic terms. A disciple is somebody who follows others. John the Baptist had disciples. The Pharisees have their disciples. Jesus has his disciples. You can be a disciple, but not a disciple of Christ. So in that sense, you could be a disciple. Um, make disciples of all nations means making those who become followers of Christ out of all nations. So if you're a genuine disciple, you can't be a genuine disciple and not be saved. No. You, can you be unsaved and be a disciple? No. Can you be a, a tear amongst the wheat, though? Well, yeah. I mean, Jesus says that there would be tares amongst the wheat. The, the illustration Jesus gives here with this parable is that there are those who, um, who, uh, who look like Christians, right? So, so the, the short version of the parable is that a farmer plants good wheat in his field. An enemy comes and plants what's called tares. T-A-R-E, tares, in the field and they grow up together and you can't tell because they look the same. Tares look a lot like wheat, but when they bud and they produce their actual fruit, the, 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 the part you can actually you know eat, then you realize it's a tear. That's when it becomes obvious. So tares here are likened to false believers mixed in with the church. So they look like disciples. Are they really disciples? Oh, the Lord knows. The Lord knows. God knows who's truly a follower of Christ and who's, who's fake. Um, yeah. Yeah, as far as mathe tuo and mathe tes, I'd, I'd have to like do a word study on those individually to see what, how they relate to each other. Um, they're obviously from the same, you know, word for disciple initially, but yeah. All right, I will have to move forward. Number eight, an anonymous question coming in. How do we know when to speak up about the truth of Christ versus when not to? I'm grieved by what I see being claimed as truth today, but I don't want to just sit back and say, I'm not supposed to judge. Um this is one of those questions where a, a, a simple answer threatens us. See, if I if I tell you, 
always speak up about the truth, then you're going to be reckless about when you speak up, right? Um, you're going to interrupt like people while they're in the middle of a, of a sentence. You're, you're going to, you're going to hijack your business meeting at, at work that you're, you guys are trying to figure out how you're going to handle this, this, this tech problem you guys have got. And you're like, always speak the Mike said, always speak the truth. Right. Um, and if I say, Oh yeah, you know, well, you know, f find the right time. You got to know the right time to say the truth. Well, then our timidity is going to take over and we're pretty much never going to share the gospel. We're pretty much never, we're only going to wait till someone asks us. In fact, I've, I've, I mean, how many Christians out there, your philosophy for sharing the gospel is, well, when they ask me, like there's this mystical moment where you expect non-believers to go, Hey, what's different about you? Right. <laughs> and I'm just like, that doesn't happen very much guys. Like, like that doesn't happen very much. So, so if we have that kind of like timidity where we sort of wait until the perfect moment, we've waited too long. And if we um, interrupt everything and hijack every moment, then we, uh, we aren't walking in wisdom. So Jesus, some examples Jesus gave, he went into the religious environments and he specifically openly talked about those issues. He went out and he taught in public. The disciples, um, maybe, maybe they're a good example of this. They would, they would go around and they would initially tell everybody the, the gospel message. Like, so they might go from like houses, hey, go to a public area, like a marketplace. Uh, basically, the marketplace was a place where it was acceptable in their culture to go out and speak openly, like about the gospel or about whatever, right? It was, it was considered like this is the open square for debate and discussion about things. So they might go to those places. They would cast a broad net, like let's tell everybody the message. And then those who want to hear more, we will aside, we will teach them more. And so there's, there's this sort of like two tier thing we see happening in the book of Acts, the wide net cast as far as possible. Paul going into um, the Areopagus, um, Paul going into synagogues and he shares it with everybody there. But then later on, he's in somebody's home and they're hosting him as he, as he gives them more of the message. So I would say the initial gospel message needs to go out wide and broad and far and further discipleship takes place for those who want to hear more. That means that when we share the gospel with somebody and they reject it, we allow them to reject it. This is not an oppressive, um, forced religious thing. It's up to them. So one big factor in when you share the gospel is, have they heard it yet? Has this person heard it yet? Because if they have not, then I'm going to be much more aggressive in finding that opportunity to share with them. And if they have, then it may be the decision that they've made. And I may be less likely to bring it up over and over and over again in every conversation. Jesus also warned us things like don't cast your pearls before swine, right? Lest they turn and tear you to pieces. That there are times where you, you look and you go, I'm not going to share with that person. But then there are other times where you go out and share with everybody. One of the rules for the early church that was countercultural was they did not restrict sharing the gospel to like rich people or to influential people. They'd share it with everybody equally and the message would go out and everybody was invited in. So tendency nowadays is that we tend to like gravitate towards the lowly and the poor. And that's probably because of the history we have as a church, just seeing that the people that are, are down uh, are often more open to hearing the gospel. And those who are, there aren't not many of you rich and wise. So there's a few thoughts for you. There's no one blanket rule um, that I can give you on this. It's going to take wisdom and thought, self-awareness, awareness of your scenario. But if you're, if you're like me and you're on the fence and you're not sure if you should share or not, and you're kind of going like wobbling, like you feel motives and reasons to share, and you might have a couple reasons you're concerned about not doing it, 
I think most of us would do good to err a little bit on the side of sharing. Unless you are one of those people, okay, let me just speak very humanly. If you enjoy confrontation, none of my advice works for you. If you just enjoy confrontation, there's a process going on in your mind that's not present for a lot of us. Um, and I don't know how to counsel you exactly on how to work through that. Some people actually enjoy confrontation. If you don't, if you're like me and you don't, then you probably should push your mouth open more often than not. If you do, maybe you need to go the other way. Number nine, Jerry Hughes, H-U-G-G-E-S, says, does the fear of the Lord mean scared? If not, why is fear still used in today's Bibles? Translation problem? Confused here. And were dinosaur bones slash fossils created by the devil to cast doubt? All right, Jerry, you cheated a little bit because that was like 17 questions. <laughs> All wrapped up into one, two completely unrelated to each other. All right. I'm going to answer them, though. All of them. All right. Does the fear of the Lord mean scared? Sometimes, but no. Inherently, it does not mean scared. In some contexts, you could, you could be afraid of God. Right? There are those who have proper fear. God holds them in derision or that you know they're scared because judgment's coming upon them. But the phrase fear of the Lord as something that simply all people should have as a proper thing, that does not mean scared. If not, then you say, if not, why is fear still used in today's Bibles? Um, <clears throat> because here's, a, okay, we are simply, it seems to me in English, we are lacking a concept we used to have. Right? So we have new words coming in all the time. You can Google something. Okay, well, that's, that's a new word. I mean, that concept didn't exist. But now it does, and the word exists for it as well. But fear of the Lord, that's a concept. We've, 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 lost, we've kept the term, but we've lost the meaning. We tend to think of fear as being terror, as being primarily like, oh, you scared me, or what are you afraid? And um, horror movies and scary stuff like that. Like, that's what we think of as fear. Fear is... Um, uh, somebody jumping out to scare you. That's fear. But there's another concept, fear of the Lord, and the way fear has been used um, historically and in scripture that means reverence and awe, and, and not just reverence like I'm totally safe reverence. Reverence that includes the idea that you're the boss in charge of me and you have the right and power to judge me. Now, if you think that means afraid, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back a little bit and say not quite, because afraid implies that you, God, that God is unreliable or not trustworthy or he f flies off the handle. That's a different kind of fear. Those who are raised with parents who um, were, were angry and harmful and hurtful because of, of their irritations, that's the kind of fear you don't want to project on God. Because those parents, you, you couldn't, like you had to, I know the feeling, okay? You had to look them in the eye and think, are they in a bad mood? I better not talk to them tonight because they're not rational and they're, they're going to, I'm potentially giving them a reason to get mad at me. And so I'll wait till they're in a good mood. And when they're in a good mood, you maybe you wait a day, a week, and now you ask them the thing. Okay. That's not what we're talking about with God. God's not like this. He's unstable. So I'm scared. Rather he's holy and righteous and he's the judge of all things so i have a proper fear of him as in reverence awareness of his goodness of his holiness and of the fact that i will stand before him accountable for my my decisions in my life so the fear of the lord is all about giving god his proper glory and his proper place in my awareness that's what the fear of the lord's all about um so it, is it a translation problem it's becoming a translation problem 
but let me ask you, like, what would you, if you just said, if you just said the reverence of God, I mean, I guess you could say that. Would it really carry all the connotations? I don't know. Um, so I don't really know how translators are supposed to handle that moving forward. Um, then you say, are were dinosaur dinosaur bones and fossils created by the devil to cast doubt? Um, I think this is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing for people to think as Christians. Um, you will make you will embarrass Christianity if, if if you as a Christian go around telling people that dinosaur bones and fossils were made by Satan to cast doubt. I want you to imagine for a second what you would think if you heard a Christian say that, and you were not a Christian. You would think, I knew it. I knew it. They're all insane. <laughs> so, um, no, I don't think that they were created by the devil to cast doubt. Um, our view of whatever we think about the world around us and ancient history and all that is going to need to include the fact that those fossils were from animals that once lived. Okay, that that's important that we deal with reality. So, yeah, that, that's my thought on that, Jerry. Uh, let's go to number uh, 10. Nick Thompson says... Do you think the denominations are a concession from God in that he knew we would disagree on doctrine? Or is it more of a of differing members of the body reaching different people in different ways? Well, I, I, I don't. Nick, sort of, you're kind of asking me to guess at like what God's heart is behind a reality that's present today. And I'm, a, I'm always hesitant to do this, to be the one saying, I think this is why God allows this or God doesn't allow that. I find that my track record guessing at God's motives for current things that confuse me is not very good, right? Um, that's a, a failing of mine, and I'm not going to step into that. What I will say is this. I think that um, when it comes to the topics of denominations, we would do well as Christians to recognize a few things. I'm going to give you several things. One, a lot of the differences in denominations are secondary issues, right? So like Baptists and Presbyterians can fellowship and get along and not and, and realize that the, that the dis disagreements there at least initial denominational issues are secondary issues right so this is why um i would consider myself um okay it, the, the old term used to be non-denominational and by non-denominational like i can tell you i'm from i'm, I'm a calvary chapel guy right so within calvary chapels were non-denominational initially what non-denominational was supposed to be was saying, hey guys, there's lots of denominations. We don't want to emphasize those secondary differences. So we're instead going to just try to say like, hey, as long as you hold to the essentials of the faith, we're your brothers and sisters in Christ. So we want to, we, we're not saying denominations are bad. We just want to make sure we're not, we, we're not falling into the divisive nature that sometimes it falls into. Um, later, non-denominational slowly turned into like um, this attitude of like, you know, I'm non-denominational, so it means like I'm, the the non-denoms non thought, so we're like, you know, better than you guys. We're contemporary. We're, we're relevant. And then the denominations looked at them and were like, you say you're non-denominational, but you're really just a denomination. And uh, you're just pretending. And it's, just, it, it's weird. It's, and this is exactly the problem. We create the problem. This is a human issue, right? This is why scripture says that we have to endeavor, like we have to strive to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's like you have to work at it as a Christian. That the unity is provided by the Holy Spirit, but is divided by humans. And we've got to work at that. So maybe a better term is just accept the fact that there's denominations and then ask whether the differences are secondary or tertiary or primary. 
Another issue you have to, I told you I'd tell you several, another issue you got to recognize is this, is that denominations change over time, right? And so like say within the United Methodists, compare what some of the, some of them are doing now to what they were doing when they founded and you realize they carry the name, but in some ways, some of the mainline denominations have become like, they, they're leaving the faith, like core doctrines of the Christian faith are just being cut right out. And so then you look at it and you go, oh, so what you've you've done is you've carried on a, 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 the name of a denominational group, but not the legacy. They would all look at you and say, you guys are not us. Like you don't hold to our actual fundamentals. So um, now not all United Methodists are like that, but but it's it's a trend for sure within that group. And there's others as well where they're just becoming these super super like theologically liberal progressive they call it progressive. Well, they, Christianity has progressed right out of Christianity uh, in many cases. So that's another issue that's going on there, keeping the name of a denomination, but not actually its distinctives um, at all. So yeah, it, now is it okay that we're, we have different views and secondary issues? If, if over here someone has infant baptism, I don't think infant baptism is biblical. I also don't think it's going to destroy Christianity if you baptize your infant. I just think, hey, that I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be done. But I'm not going to personally create division over that. So if there's different fellowships people are in, as long as they're not like cast, casting ugly glances at each other over it, I think it's fine. Number 11, Katie's online name says, what is your best answer to a Mormon responding, there is only one God by saying, yes, only one God for us. Only one God we are to worship, and that's our Heavenly Father, but there are others elsewhere. Um, I like that you asked for my best answer. <laughs> that's, I like asking people for their best answer on things. I would want to sit, I mean, like, I would just want to sit and think for like several minutes about my best answer. So I'm going to throw some things out there to think about since this is the live Q&A off the top of my head. Um, the Isaiah passage uh, the, in the 40s, Isaiah in the 40s, right? You have a lot of this monotheistic stuff going on in the 40s. Um, uh, and God says things like, I'll give you some specifics. Um, let me, it's going to take me a second to find... Um, Uh, okay, so Isaiah 40 is one. Um, I'm not finding the verse off really that fast. So let me go to Deuteronomy. Here's another scripture for you. Deuteronomy 4.39. Therefore know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. The monotheism of um, Judaism is kind of a big deal. And... What you, what you want to understand is what Mormons are really claiming. They're not even just claiming there's other spiritual beings out there that can be called gods in some sense. They're, they're actually going to claim, and it gets super complicated, because Mormonism, their defense against their bad theology is nowadays to get ridiculously complicated so that it's super hard to talk about. Um, but biblically speaking, right, there's one God and there is no other. There's there's no one like God. God, this is like even even Michael Heiser, who holds to like his whole divine counsel thing. For those who are familiar with that, he likes to use the phrase Yahweh is species unique. Okay, so even on the the 
the if you could stretch the 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 discussion of gods as far as possible and mormons all the time like to use michael heiser this is what you'll encounter they like to quote him he doesn't like it and he has teaching where he explains why they're misusing his stuff but his point is yahweh is species unique god there's only one god there's only one yahweh there's only one well god is multiple in his personhood but there's only one yahweh there's only one yahweh in that sense um when you look at mormonism though what you actually have is go back go back go back what's eternal in, in in all of creation what is the thing that's eternal you know christians would say god right just god just god that's it just god is eternal everything else is created and temporal it, it, it came into being god himself never came into being creation itself the universe all this stuff came into being this is christian theology long before big big bang theory ever came around and said yeah that's right um mormonism though teaches that matter time and space are eternal did you catch that? Matter, time, and space are eternal. And there is something that was very ill-defined in Mormonism called intelligences. It's never really explained. But they think that God's history works this way. God initially was not God. That's super important. They, they believe God was not God. God was once a man the way that I am a man. On a different planet, either a planet or near a star called Kolob. And then he lived a human life. And guess what he had? He had a God, his own God that he worshiped and he served. And he did so good living that life and did the right things that he became exalted and turned into a God and got his own planet. And now he populated the earth with his spirit babies and you guys can become gods too. In Mormonism, there are more gods than in just about any religion out there because there's just no, it's just like who knows how many there are and there's always going to be in more in the future there will be you know on into infinity there will be more gods because every you know if you become a god you have a planet with a bunch of people on it and then they can become a god too so in light of scripture compared to that mormon teaching they try to shrink it down by going, well god's the only god we worship but what they're saying is that in the ontology of the universe there are countless other gods including god once had once was was not god and he had his own god that he worshiped that is completely incompatible with biblical teachings like they're completely irrevocably incompatible you go to genesis you go to hebrews and you see that god created all things and he is the one who is always existent in fact genesis 1 reads like a refutation of polytheism of the idea of these, this multiplicity of gods because it, it, it tells the creation account in a way that was directly conflicting with all the other ancient Near Eastern uh, ways of looking at creation. So my best answer to Mormon saying this is um, that isn't what scripture tells us. Where does scripture tell us that God wasn't always God, that he had a God that he worshiped, and then now he's saying there's, there is no other. Um, yeah, specifically in Isaiah, God says that he doesn't know any other gods. That's the, um, here we go. Isaiah 44, verse 8. This other verse I'll give you. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. And then he adds this. I know not any. So it's one thing to say, you guys have no other God. But this would involve on Mormon theology, God saying that he's not aware of any other gods, yet the only way he became exalted is by having a God that he was he was faithful to. So that would be one of the things I would share as well. 
But I guarantee you, Mormonism, the response is going to be, oh, but it's way more complicated than that. Because <laughs> it always gets more complicated. Um, not like nothing's complicated, but sometimes complexity is just being used as a disguise. SR, SR's Creations says, what is the mark of the beast as described in Revelation 13? I've heard and read so many things, and I'm not sure how to make sense of it. I don't know. Um, so here's a couple thoughts on this. One is in Revelation 13, we have a, well, let, let's look at it, you guys. Let's look at it for those who maybe need a little refresher reminder about the mark. Um, I'll read a section here from Revelation. And I saw a beast, Revelation 13, rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. The dragon is Satan here. And one of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped um, the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given, given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been found, written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Okay, so th there's going to be this um, world world ruler or kingdom. And I won't even try to get into the symbolism, all this stuff of what it represents. I don't think it's going to physically look like these things. I think these are all symbolic representations so far. And the saints need to endure through this time of persecution and suffering. The second beast. I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast in its presence. So the first beast is, exercises Satan's authority. Then the second beast exercises the first beast's authority. So it's like tearing down. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Okay, so some would call this the false prophet whose mortal wound was healed. He's doing this sort of like stirring up the worship of this, of this uh, beast. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast. Okay, so the people make an image of some kind for the beast. You could think back about Nebuchadnezzar. There was a big literal image made of him and they did literally worship it. That was wounded by the sword and yet lived, verse 15. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that even the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Okay, now it's easy to think of technology as being the way this is fulfilled. And I'm not, I mean, that's possible. But I just, I'm just going to not tell you how I think it's going to be fulfilled. I think that I don't know. And just because it could be that way, and, it, and in my culture, in my moment, it looks like it might be that way if it happened right now, doesn't mean that I'm right about it. Because I've read too many people from 10, 50, 80, 100 years ago who got it all wrong because they thought if it happened today, it would look this way. And they made assumptions. Um, 
But the important thing is, is that there's like a religion now around this thing. And the image of the beast has some function of speaking, communicating. And if you don't worship it, you'll be slain. Also, and then this is the reason why I read all that is because in the, the mark is in the context of those things. We tend to think of the mark as being like its own separate thing. Like there's like you might accidentally take the mark, right? Like, um, you know, you go to Disneyland and you're on your way out and they're like, you want the stamp? You know, you can't come back in without the stamp and you can't buy or sell in here without the stamp. And so you get the stamp and then you, no, I didn't know it was the mark, Disney. You know, um, this is this is not what we should be thinking. Verse 16, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. This mark seems to be in relation to what? The religious worship of this beast. That, that's in the image of the beast. The mark is connected to the worship. That's, that's my point here. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This implies what? Um, either that... John doesn't know exactly what this mark's going to be, or he's just telling you the mark will be associated with the name of the beast or the number of its name in some fashion. The earlier reference to the number of a name, right, um, is interesting here. Uh, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Uh, now, preterists would say um, that that represents a Nero. Um, and others would say, oh, it represents, and they would name anybody they want. Like, you can pick a president of the U.S., you can make a way to make their name come out to 666. <laughs> it's just always going to be everybody. My point is this. Since people emphasize buying and selling and requiring a mark, and then that's kind of all they talk about, this has led to people thinking that the mark of the beast is <clears throat> um, barcodes. And uh, I've, I've heard this, that I was going to hold up a barcode, but I don't think I have a barcode in front of me. Um the, uh, that the mark of the beast is, is barcodes, and barcodes, the two long ones represent six, and the two long ones in the middle represent six, and the two extra long ones on each side, six, 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 and it's barcodes. And so this was like, caused paranoia amongst Christians in an embarrassing and unhealthy fashion in the 70s and in the 80s. Then it became credit cards. Credit cards, and they started figuring out how credit cards were all associated with 666 somehow. Right, and why is this? Because barcodes were needed for buying and selling. Now you didn't get them on you yet, but they but they thought maybe they will. That's all. It just takes one little thing. It just takes one little step, and then it's on you. And this is where I want to say, Christians, um, I am not your guide here, but let me tell you what my experience has been personally. I have seen more Christians spazzing out, and and causing fear, unnecessary fear in others as well as making themselves look silly because of them trying to predict where the mark of the beast is going to be, what it's going to be, and when it's going to happen. I don't think you should do this. I think as a Christian, you, need, you need to stop. Look at the context of Revelation 13, and here's, what, here's my point. It's not just buying and selling. It's the, worship, it's the presence of this beast, the presence of the second beast, the image that speaks that you must worship, and then the, the buying and selling is now attached to that. And until that happens... Personally, if you, anybody out there, Christians, I love you, but if you come to me and tell me that you think the vaccine is the mark of the beast and you think that the um, getting a chip put in your hand so you can you can access your work, your work computer is the mark of the beast, please don't. I don't even want to hear it. Like, I'm so, so beyond it. I, I can't shake you of this opinion, maybe. Fine. Consider me 
to be someone who doesn't care. <laughs> Unless this mark is associated with the worship of the beast, right? And his image, then the fact that you can't buy or sell without fill in the blank doesn't impress me that much. Because there are always, there's, in, a, in any society, there's always something that's associated with buying and selling. A currency, right? A credit card, uh, a digital currency. There's always going to be something. And then there's going to be a group of Christians in that society freaking out about that thing, embarrassing other Christians and making it harder to preach the gospel in that culture. And I, y'all, you need to stop. Number 13, uh, do we have Jesus in our hearts as believers? What about worship songs about Jesus in the room? John 16, verses 5 through 10, Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. And basically all of Revelation seem to say that Jesus is in heaven now. Thanks. Okay, so yes, Jesus is in heaven. Is Let's answer the first question first. Is Jesus like with me right now? Um, well, the, the answer is not one or the other. It's both. Okay, so um, even in this passage, John 16, he says, I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? Because I've said these things. Your heart has filled you with uh, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. So Jesus now speaks of how he's departing. He, he's on the earth still. He's about to die at the end of John. This is like right at the end of Jesus's earthly life. And he's like, when I depart after he dies, right, then rises and then ascends. The, after the ascension, he sends the Holy Spirit. So he's going to send the Holy Spirit. But what you have to understand is the function of the Holy Spirit is that that is how the Father and the Son are with us. So um, <clears throat> th this is where I say Jesus is in heaven, but his presence is somehow with us even as the Holy Spirit is with us. There's an overlap here. There's something going on here that we need to understand. And that helps answer your question a little bit. So when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority. For whatever he hears, he will speak to you and he will declare to you things that are to come. Um, uh, let me see. There's a passage I want to find real quick. And it is in the Bible. Um, uh, let me, oh man, where is it? It's in John. Um, and he talks about the Father and the Son making their home in you. And this is through the Holy Spirit that this happens. Uh, John 14, 23. Oh, I was almost there. Just two chapters off. Okay, John 14. 23. Okay. Uh, listen to what Jesus says here. Yes, he's going to ascend. Okay, he physically ascends. But Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The father and the son. Whoever does not love me does not, uh, does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me. Then he goes on to explain this in more detail. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all these things. And so he starts talking, he says, look, if you love me, then, then the Father and me are going to make our home in you. And then he says, and the Holy Spirit's going to come. This is, to me, I think these are related. The way that the Father um, and the Son are with us is in the Holy Spirit, is through the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is the Father, is the Son. I think scripture works hard so we know there's a difference. But there's also a unity in God, right? It's not that there's three different gods or something like this. There's one God. And when we have the Holy Spirit, we do have the presence of ultimately the Spirit of Christ, right? And the Spirit of the Father. 
So there's there's an interrelationship in, in the Trinity that should be acknowledged here. So when I say, like, do I have Jesus in my heart as a believer? I think it's, it's perhaps it's slightly clumsy to say it that way, but I think it's true. Yes, Jesus is with me. And there are some preachers who would say, um, don't teach your kids that Jesus is in here. Teach them that Jesus is there and the Holy Spirit's here. And I'll be like, well, that's that's accurate too. The thing is, they're both true. I think the problem is trying to make them exclusive. That would be creating the confusion. What about worship songs that say that Jesus is in the room? Um, the statement where Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Um, so you could, you could say Jesus is in the room, so to speak. I mean, the presence of the Holy Spirit means that God is wherever you are because you have the Holy Spirit. And when you're gathered as a group, there you have like the church's authority present where two or three believers are gathered in his name. There's like, that's, that was an authority related passage. So um, I think that what I'm suggesting here is worship songs sometimes treat these things a little clumsily, but that doesn't mean that I should cast them out entirely. That would be my balance. I just want to provide a more thoughtful approach to it. But I would be able to, if someone's like, man, here we are, we're gathered in his name and he is with us. I'll be like, yeah, that's true. That's true. So here's my cat again, just because I know she's cuter than me. <laughs> Yeah. Aww. All right. I'm going to go to the next question. And this is number 14, I think. 13? 14. Kevin Lionel, who has a question that says, Frank Turek said, paraphrasing, that in heaven we will have free will, but we won't sin because we won't have sin nature. If that's the case, why didn't God just make us like that on earth? Uh, Kevin, two things. Um, I think I do agree with Frank on this. Okay. We have free will, but we won't sin because we don't have sin nature. Um, two, actually th three things. I'll try to answer the question. Before I do, here's the second thing. I just want Christians to know this. What if we have no good answer here? We'll have free will and we won't sin. Why didn't God just make us that way right now? And the, and the answer, we just throw our hands up and go, I have no idea. Like this shouldn't bother you, Christian. Like sometimes the world, um, or even yourself, you act like you have to know everything to be confident about anything. And that is a very unwise thing because you will never know everything. So then the result is you'd never be confident about anything ever, um, which we can be confident is a bad way to live your life. So I'm going to suggest is like, just for anybody who's like, every time you have a question about Christianity that you don't know the answer to, you're like on the edge of a cliff. Like there's a, there's a different problem there than the question. Think about that. How, why do I say this? Because I know, because I've been there. It took me a long time of answering questions to realize that I had this tendency to like be afraid. Of, this is, is, if I can't answer this, then I, 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 everything's in question. And, it, and it, I just slowly learned how dumb I am and how many things I don't, I don't have answers for and I shouldn't expect myself to. I do have good answers for many very important things. And the foundational truths of Christianity are very well established. So... This kind of stuff shouldn't bother you, but it's it's a good question still. So um, why didn't God make the world like this to start with? I think one of the most obvious answers is for free will. Okay, when you go to heaven, you have made a decision to accept and embrace God and, re and reject a godless life. Now, God aids you in that choice when he removes the flesh from you. And he's granted you a new spirit and all this, but this was all part of a decision you made. And so in response to a choice you made, but what, but if you were just all, we were just all in heaven in perfect experiences with no temptations of any kind ever, 
then that would mean we never made that choice. So if you want to preserve the choice, you do need to give us an opportunity to get there and not just to be there. Um, the other thing is that we actually learn a lot of good things through this time of difficulty. So philosophers, I'm not making this up. Some of you think I'm making stuff up. Uh, not at the moment anyway. So philosophers will think about how to make a perfect world. And there are some philosophers who will argue, and I think that this is interesting, that there's no way to make a perfect world without first making an imperfect world. Because there are certain benefits that come from an imperfect state that will then be needed in the perfect state. Now that might sound weird, but struggles produce character and hardship produces benefits um, along with things like free will. Who wants to be in that perfect world? Who wants to be with God? Because nobody wants to be in hell, but a lot of people don't really want heaven. They don't really want to be where God is Lord of all they do. Right? They, don't, they don't look forward to that. They don't want to worship God for all eternity. I've met plenty of people who say that even if God was real, they would reject him. And I'll be like, well, he is real and you are. <laughs> but the, and it's, that's terribly sad. But there's something positive about you even being able to make that choice. So that when we stand before him in all eternity, it's only those who've decided that they want that. Um, so there's benefits that come from it. Um, one of the benefits is Christ. So like, I don't know about you, Kevin, but the, the weight of God, of how much God loves me, the reason why I'm aware of it is because of the cross of Christ. And when I look at my failures and my sins and my overwhelming wickedness that I've committed in my life, and I look at him coming and taking on human form and living a, a good life, a perfect life, but then dying and suffering the shame of what I've done the guilt for what I've done being placed upon him, the punishment for what I've done being experienced by him, him dying and then rising again. I, this is, this is the thing I always come back to, to tell me that God does love me right now and to encourage me to love others, whether they deserve it or not. It's the cross. Now, if, if God just made us all in heaven, there would be no cross. There would be no massive demonstration of the love of God for people. There's a, there's a number of things that we would miss if God did do that. Um, I think, though, that what we are is we're still in the middle of the story and we have to, like, let it play out and trust God that he's going to work all things together for good and, and not try to make judgment calls on things before we get there. Number 15, Lisa versus the Cassandra effect versus Perilous Times. That's just her YouTube name, okay? She has a question. I lost a good friend of over 20 years. He was recovering from a heroin addiction. He called his parents saying he couldn't take it anymore and shot himself. What can I say to comfort them? Um, Lisa, there's obviously a lot more going on in that scenario. Um, sometimes with comforting people, one of the things you can do is just be around them. Like, can you go visit them? Can you just go get lunch with them, sit with them? Uh, if they're open for that, maybe some people need to be left alone. Some people it's better to be around them. Um, one thing to encourage you, all of us with is to recognize Job's miserable comforters. In the book of Job, they... They felt that they had to come and assess the situation with Job, right? They First, they just sat with him. That was probably the best thing they did. They sat with him and he cried and they were silent. And finally, Job speaks up and he's like, this shouldn't happen to me. This wasn't my fault. And then they speak up and they're like, well, actually, you know. And so then it turns into this like, why did this whole thing need to be said, right? I mean, we learn a lot from Job, so I'm glad it happened in that sense. But we don't want to be those who enter into people's sorrows and then try to provide them an analysis, 
well, let me let me tell you what you should think about all this stuff that has just happened. Um, oftentimes, I feel like I have to do that, but I just hold my tongue and I just hug somebody and tell them I'm so so sorry, you know. And then you you know you could ask, is there anything I can do for you? And there almost never is. So sometimes just be with somebody, spend a little bit of time with them, um, send them a gift, write them a card. Just try to be there and show them that you care about them. That's one of the greatest comforts that you can give. If they're looking for an assessment, Lisa, if you're, I actually have a video that talks about suicide and the topic of suicide from a Christian and biblical perspective, and I go through tons of details on it. I recommend that. Maybe mods, one of the mods could put my video on the topic of suicide in the live chat, and I will, after the stream, I'll put a link to it down below as well that you guys can find it in the video description um, uh, for those who are watching on YouTube. And... Otherwise, just, just go to like BibleThinker.org and type the word suicide. You will see that video pop up. Yeah, that, that'll help with the assessment. Uh, I, I do not think suicide means someone's automatically barred from heaven or something like that. But but Lisa, there's the, the first thing is just you're not going to fix anything. You just want to provide comfort, right? You just want to be a blanket in the cold and, and, and help in that sense. My, my thoughts there, learning from Job. Johann Pretorius, Johann says, some characters are heroes of, in the faith, but not mentioned much in the Bible. People like Enoch and Melchizedek. How can I find out more about what was so special about their relationship with God? Oh, man. <laughs> Johann, the reason why I, I laugh is because um, in ancient Jewish writings, they were wondering the same thing. Like, man, I want to know more about Enoch. And so they wrote a lot of more stuff about Enoch, a lot of extra legendary stuff about him. We just don't know. That's the thing. I mean, Johan, uh, you could go to the book of Enoch, right? First Enoch, or there's other stuff as well. But I, I don't think it's telling you the truth about Enoch. And I know there's a very, very um, like serious group of people who think Enoch should be in Scripture, that book, and all this other thing. And I, I disagree, okay? I'm not on that page with you on that, so I don't I don't hold to that. But, uh, but yeah, you could go to that. But I think what you're finding is in many of the sections of that writing, not all of them, you're going to find that it's people trying to fill in the gaps. So one of the modern things people do is they look at Jesus and they go, hey, we have information from when he was 30. We have information, a tiny little one day of info from when he was 12. We have information when he's an infant. What else happened? And so we have fiction authors who make stuff up and write it. The big warning for us, Johan, is we're not learning about these people. If you want to know for sure what you can know about Enoch, you look up the word Enoch and you find every verse that refers to him and that's what you know. <laughs> that's, and we just have to live with it. Um, yeah, we don't know that much about Enoch. We don't know that much about Melchizedek. And later traditions are spawned often by the same desire you have. I want to know more about these guys. They look amazing. Um, but let me tell you one thing about Melchizedek in particular that I think is exciting. Melchizedek is a picture of Christ and it and in Hebrews, it talks about how he's a picture of Christ. But the picture depends, in a lot of ways, on what we don't know about Melchizedek. So I have a video on this. If you just search Melchizedek and my name, you'll, it'll, it'll pop up. You'll find it. But um, Hebrews says that Melchizedek was without genealogy. Okay, when you read Genesis, he's not like without genealogy. Like it doesn't say Melchizedek had no genealogy. It just doesn't give you his genealogy. It says that he was out without um, father or mother. He didn't have beginning of life or end of days. It doesn't mean he was eternal. That's my interpretation of this. It doesn't mean that. It means that in the text, 
you, you're not told when he was born or when he died because the Bible's drawing a picture of Jesus with this person named Melchizedek. That being said, Johan, sometimes there's lessons we learn by the things we don't know about somebody. And that's what I would be more interested in when it comes to Enoch, Melchizedek, is what's, what's not said might not be said for a reason and for a lesson for us to learn there. In the case of Melchizedek, it's a beautiful picture of Christ. Number 17, Rick H. says, Why did Jesus mention eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building, and getting married in Luke 17? Thanks, Pastor Mike and Sarah. And um, Sarah is uh, my assistant, the only other person that works for Bible Thinker. <laughs> and uh, so, that just so you guys know. Luke 17. Um, let me find... We'll just read a big section of scripture here, get the full context. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It will be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Guys, this is... Side note, I can't pass this up. This is a huge thing. Can you imagine somebody sinning against you seven times in a day and seven times he comes and says, hey, I repent and you have to forgive him? Here's the cool, encouraging thing. This means that if you had this relationship with God, that that would be his attitude to you. Lord, I blew it seven times today, but seven times today I came to you and said, I'm repent, I'm sorry. He forgives. I, yeah, there's two sides to that coin. Verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea and it would obey you. Um, oh, then he talks about servants. Let me let me get to the passage. Are you sure it was Luke 17? Yeah, here it is. Okay. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Here's where the passage comes up. The topic. He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. This is a huge revelation of the nature of Jesus' kingdom is that it comes um, to individuals, not as an organizational like government, which is what they were thinking of, but just individuals. This is why his kingdom is not of this world, so his servants don't fight. Then he talks about the future. The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Um, we get more details about this in other places in the gospel so I can fill in some gaps you might see. Um, when they say, look here or look there, they're, they're saying, look, we found the Messiah. Oh, the Messiah is here, the Messiah is there. Jesus is like, don't listen to people saying that Christ has come. His second coming will be public and everyone will see it. So anybody claiming to be the second coming of Jesus, anybody is wrong because no one will have to tell you. Because Jesus will it'll be like lightning that flashes the, the whole sky. Everyone's going to see. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just uh, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And now we come to the, to the question. And the flood came and destroyed them. These are the things they're doing. They're living their normal lives with no awareness that judgment is coming. That's the point of eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were what? Eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. 
so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, and one will be left and the other taken. Um, I read that backwards, but same meaning. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures gather. <laughs> How enigmatic. <laughs> Jesus is sometimes very enigmatic. Interesting, though. Okay. Um, let me just focus on your question instead of like a whole thing on in time stuff right now. Your question is, why did Jesus mention these things? Eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building, getting married in this passage. What he's saying is there will be those who are living in this world as though it's just going to keep going. And then he comes and judgment comes and they're not ready for it. And so the thing is, for the application for us simply is this, is not that you can't get married or buy and sell or any of that, but rather that you first get your life right with God. Your number, one, your number one priority is that you are in the kingdom of Christ, his invisible kingdom in this world that is in the midst of us, that you are part of that kingdom. You, you belong to Christ. Your security, in, in your eternal security is in him. That's the idea. And um, uh, I'm not meaning to allude to uh, Tulip there. But anyway, <laughs> the, um, the, the idea here is for us to realize that a lot of times when people hear the gospel of Christ, what they're really doing is making a decision between living for his eternal kingdom or living for this world. Now, you might get saved and still have a job and still build and plant and stuff like that, but you're doing it all in light of the fact that it's all going to burn and that you want to store up treasures in heaven. And that's the main focus. So he's warning us about a worldly mentality that doesn't take into consideration that the kingdom's coming. The kingdom's coming. And you're either ready for it or you're not. Number 18, Trent Lancaster has a question. It says, how do you interpret the day of the Lord, the phrase day of the Lord? Do you understand it as a single day or do you see it as the whole tribulation period? People seem to have differing views on this. Yeah, Trent, I did a thing a long time ago on this. Um, I don't think the term day of the Lord is is means any specific time period. So I think the term day of the Lord represents any time where God is actively usually in judgment is actively like engaging in a very dramatic way in history. So there's been many day of the Lord moments in the old Testament and in Israel's history. And there is a future day of the Lord. There's multiple day of the Lord things coming, but there is a particular day of the Lord that's coming. That is that tribulation time. Okay. And so in that sense, the day of the Lord is not that specific of a term. It can be used to apply to lots of things. So trying to say, Every time you hear day of the Lord, it refers to the, to the uh, one day or to a season. It, it's, just, it's just too flexible to be given a, a, a limit like that. Um, I, would, I would easily say that the tribulation period is the day of the Lord. And then the, the moment Christ sets his foot back on the earth is also the day of the Lord. Like these, it can be used in a flexible way. So that, that's my view on that. Number 19, Dustin Hoover says, big fan. Thanks, Dustin. Just wanted a cl uh, clarity on John 15, 1 through 8. Is Jesus talking about people losing their salvation or people walking away from him and the faith? Can't wait for your teaching on Hebrews. God bless. I'm looking forward to it as well, Dustin. Um, as I go to the John passage and we'll look at it together. I am currently doing my 
massive prep study on women in ministry and all the related passages. I have tons of stuff coming your guys' way from that. I'm not really sure how I'm going to teach it, whether it's just one giant teaching or probably a couple different videos. We'll we'll see. Uh, we'll see. I, I have tons of research still to do um, that may take weeks or even possibly months. Sorry, I appreciate your guys' patience. I um, just want to do a real good job with it. And then we'll do Hebrews after that is over. Um, so John 15, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does does bear fruit, he prunes. Okay, so takes away. We'll talk about that in a second. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the, bran- I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I always thought this was really interesting the way it's worded. He's like, you can do nothing. <laughs> it's up to you. You want your life to amount to ultimately nothing. Like that's what you can do apart from him. It's just, you can do a lot, but it ends up being nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Okay, that does not seem to be referring to people who are saved, right? Okay, so that's... Like, is that suggesting you can lose your salvation? I'm gonna, I'm not going to talk right now about the too much about the he takes away. There's a debate on this. Does it takes away or lifts up? Let's just skip because whatever we answer there, we still have to deal with this. Um, that if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. Uh, to abide in means to remain. So some would say this, this is evidence that you can lose your salvation because you were originally in Christ, but you didn't remain in Christ. You didn't abide in Christ. But one of the problems I think with John in particular, um, or and really the gospels, when, when we approach the gospels from a um, Christian perspective is that sometimes we forget that they were introducing the gospel to a group of Jewish people. And then it sometimes takes on a different connotation, some of the passages we're reading. And this this is one of them. So the vine terminology in the Old Testament, Israel is the vine. But Jesus, he is like the true vine. He's like true Israel. And your connection to God has to do with you being connected to him. That's the big reveal moment for the, for the Gospel of John here. Hey, Israel, you're not just saved by you being Israel. You need to know you were all about me. And, and you individually are not part of this kingdom unless you're plugged into me, into Christ. Not not Mike Winger. He has no, he's not necessary in anybody's life. Um, so John 15, I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. He calls God his father. He says that he's the true vine. It's all about Christ. It's all about him. Israel was all about him. And you're not truly going to be part of Israel unless you are part of him. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. This is all about like, hey, it's going to all going to depend on your connection to Christ. So then who are the branches that don't abide? Well, here's where I, I think we've gone sometimes a little beyond the text here. Okay. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. I think this represents the same thing John has been dealing with all along, which is he came to his own, John 1, but his own did not receive him. Right? Or you don't believe me because you don't believe Moses. Right? Jesus is coming into a Jewish community that should be primed and ready to trust the Messiah. Some of them do. Many of them don't. And that's, I think, what he's talking about. Hey, Israel, you've been, you've been used to carry the promise of the Messiah. And now you've borne the Messiah. And now, will you abide in the Messiah? Will you be in Christ? 
So when you look at it like that, that he's coming from a community of people who some accept Christ and some reject Christ, but they all were supposed to because he's the true vine. I think it just doesn't relate to whether you can lose your salvation or not. That That's my view on the John passage. It just doesn't relate. Um, my, my opinion, I encourage you to read through all of John and recognize that Jesus is in throughout John entering into a community of people who in one sense are the people of God, but are they really, are they really individually part of God's kingdom truly? And that will depend on how they treat Jesus. And that I think is what you're getting there. Number 20, KM says, you said that we should leave in the longer ending of Mark's gospel because removing it could upset some Christians. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to read the rest of your question in a second, but KM, that's not what I say at all. I definitely don't say that. Um, so definitely just, and I'm sure you're not trying to misrepresent me here. It's just a misunderstanding. Sometimes I'll I'll see things and I'll think, did I not say that well enough? Because I because I see someone commenting and I go, I, I don't know how they got that. I don't think that. So I do not think you should leave the longer ending in because it would upset Christians. My concern about it upsetting Christians is that. I care about people and I don't want something to stumble them or hurt them or harm them. Okay. But that doesn't mean I'm making a decision about what should happen to the longer ending because of that. Like I'm not doing that. I think we should leave the long ending of Mark's gospel in because of my view of canon canonization, like how we get our scripture from God. And um, I tried to make this case in a video I did a few weeks ago on the longer ending of Mark. And you guys can find that on my website or on on my youtube channel and it's just uh it's 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 the mark series part 69 that's the part this session uh, that we did here's the short version of it um i don't think that mark authored these last 12 verses i don't think they were originally part of mark's gospel okay that you might think is two reasons to not include it in your bible but i do think it's very very early and it has attestation very early, like, like like early second century, it was part of Mark's gospel. And I, I don't mean it became part in the early second century. It's just like probably by the early second century, it's part of Mark's gospel. It's being, it's being put there. But where did it actually come from? It could be that it came from teaching of the apostles. It could be that it came from teaching of trusted elders who were, who sat under the apostles. I don't know. But what I do know is when you look at the manuscript evidence over time, you see that it more and more becomes a, a dominant feature in Mark's gospel. And my understanding of canonicity is that the canon, the, 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 the books of the New Testament and the Old Testament, this is just what happened to us. Like we didn't pick them. They just, they picked us. Like they picked the church, so to speak. God just gave it to us and the church just looked around and went, here they are. And, um, uh, when I look at the way that the longer ending of Mark takes place, it, it feels like it may be that case. I don't know for sure, but it may just be that this is what the Holy Spirit had for us. Now, I have a little theory as to why it was, you know, the way it was. And that is that Mark was writing for um, communities that would hear the gospel. They'd see it end at verse 8. And then immediately living witnesses would, would appeal to them their own eyewitness appearance of seeing Jesus or them having met Peter or having met Paul or having met James or someone who had seen Christ risen and the communities would then, that would be more impactful than having a written account at the time because those witnesses were accessible. And then some time went by, those witnesses are no longer accessible. And so then the summary of the appearances of Christ and of the going out of the gospel becomes attached to Mark 
and it may well be apostolic. It's consistent with the other teachings in the scripture. So I'm suggesting that it's there, right? Um, it looks like maybe that's what the Holy Spirit had intended for us. And I don't have the guts to cut it out because I'm so confident it doesn't belong. <laughs> that's it. It's not because of removing it would upset Christians. Then the rest of your statement is, uh, if this is so, then should we begin including things like the comma Johannum? Uh, that's, that's the story of uh, the first John five, where it talks about the, it's a Trinitarian verse and that probably is not almost certainly was not originally in the passage. Um, and uh, it's good doctrine. It just wasn't probably there. Um, should we include that because removing it would upset some Christians? No, because that's not my philosophy here. Uh, where do you believe we should draw the line and why? I think we should draw the line that uh, when a text is part of the overall New Testament very early on, very, very early on, right? Bef you know, by the time it's universally known to the church, it's like part of the text. Like that, that's, that to me is a big deal. Okay. And, and I don't think the comma Johannum fits that description. So, so yeah, yeah. Okay. I hope that that helped clarify. Um, tough stuff, all these things. Thank you guys for joining. I will not be with you Monday. I was going to try and pull together a video for Monday, but I'm just not going to be able to do it in time. And I'm going to, I want to devote, I was going to just do a random thing, but I'm going to devote my time to prepping for women in ministry, which means you won't be hearing from me on Mondays as much for a little bit, maybe here and there. We shall see. But I will be doing every Friday, every Friday, without fail, except for next Friday. <laughs> there's there's nothing happening next Friday. No stream. It may be two weeks before I have another live stream, uh, but I will have a few other little videos that will pop up here and there that you guys can see. Anyway, just giving you a heads up. Thank you for joining. I hope I've given you something to think about. The goal here is to think biblically about everything, not just to learn what Mike thinks about things. I'm more interested in you learning the process of looking at a passage in context and grabbing its different elements and trying to compare it to other scriptures. That is invaluable, and I hope that it is equipping you to do your own thinking, to answer your own questions and answer the questions of others. So thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys have a wonderful day. Lord bless you.